So I confess to you this morning as we start, there's some difficulties this morning that I'm going to tell you about. One difficulty is to come to the truth of the passage that we're in. That's always a challenge, sometimes greater challenge than other times. This time, because of the nature of this passage, it's a particular challenge. Uh, Second challenge then, as we look to what is truth, right, trying to get to what it is, is this a college lecture or is this a worship service? Well, the answer is obvious. We're not here just for information. We're here to glorify God, right? Now, as we learn God's Word, as we know more, we should be able to glorify Him better. But there are some texts that are kind of dry, that it's, it's hard to do that. And so those things combined make this an incredibly difficult passage to look at this morning. Uh, so before we do, let's go to the Lord, ask Him to help us <laughs> in this, all right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Feed us through your word today. <laughs> Lord, we need your insight. Men does, do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, help us to let go of anything. Forgive our brothers as you have forgiven us. And Lord, would you please lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever without end. As we look to Genesis, Lord, we ask that we'd look to Christ, that you'd illuminate this text, and Lord, that you would make it make sense to those who are hearing this morning. We pray that you'd be using this and our feeble efforts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to start here by reading the end of chapter 5. I'd like to pick it up here in verse 21 of chapter 5, or not, sorry, not verse 21, verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of, who were of old, the men of renown. 
The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And I'm going to stop there. My intention is to get through verse 4 today, but I wanted to read through verse 5 just to give it some context here. So, we start out here in chapter 5, and we went through this last week and said essentially this, that the purpose of these genealogies, and that's going to be all the genealogies in the Bible, is to show the line from Adam to Jesus Christ. That's what's important about them. It's not each individual man. It's not all of the things they thought. And then it was, we did some comparison between the two different genealogies, the one in chapter 4, the one in chapter 5. The chapter 4 genealogy is the line of Cain. The chapter 5 genealogy is the line of Seth. Cain being the bad seed from Adam. He is the one who killed his brother, the first murderer on the face of the earth. And then you see the seventh in his line down, this man named Lamech or Lamech. And it talks about uh, his children and his wives. And it talks about what they did. They, they uh, uh, did, did metallurgy. They made music. The girl was beautiful. They were builders of cities. They were making a name for themselves. We see in the seventh line of from Adam through Seth, somebody totally different. In the seventh there, we see Enoch. So Lamech, this mighty guy, building a name. Look at what I've done. Here's what it says about Enoch. He walked with God. Wasn't trying to make a name for himself. <laughs> he humbled himself. He trusted the Lord. Essentially, at the core, very different. And Enoch took, was taken by God. Uh, it, it, was, it was a picture of, of future rapture is what's really going on here. So those are the two lines. When it comes down to the end of the line where it's being discussed here, we have a different Lamech. This is a different Lamech. It's not the same one in the line of Cain. Lamech is the son of Methuselah, who was the oldest man who ever lived. And Lamech says this about Noah. He says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, do you remember Eve when she gave birth to Abel, to Cain and Abel? You remember what she said? She said that, let's, let's turn there. Okay, hold on. Uh, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's Genesis 4.1. The idea behind that was saying, hey, maybe this is the one who's going to come deliver us after we've fallen because they just fell. This is the one. Now we see a prophecy of a kind here about Noah. This is the guy who's going to bring us relief. Maybe he's the one. Maybe he is the one in this line who's going to redeem us, who's going to help us. And we see here, and we're going to see it play out in the, the couple weeks to come here, when we look at the flood, Noah is a type of Christ. In, if you look at typology, okay? You know what I mean by that, type of Christ? He's not, not there aren't different kinds of Jesus. That's not what I mean by that. But he is... We can look to him and he's got qualities that point to our Savior. 
Jesus. So, <clears throat> so that's what is said here about Noah. That maybe he's going to bring us some relief. Now, Noah's name doesn't mean relief. But it means rest, or some have interpreted it even as gentle. He is altogether different than that line of Cain. They're rough and tumble and hard. Noah, maybe he's going to bring us some rest, some relief here. Now, the flood happened 1,656 years from the time that Adam was created to the time the flood starts. 1,656 years. So right now, we're rolling back the clock because in verse 32 of chapter 5, it says, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So now we're about 1562. And I want to tell you, I think we're really about 1542 right here. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why because of verse 3. Genesis 6, 3. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. Two ways to interpret that. One way is that God is going to shorten the life of men, which is true. We'll see that play out after the flood. Men, women live for a shorter time. They don't live to 900 some years old anymore or 800 some years anymore, right? Their, their time is much less. But it's not limited to 120 yet. That, that takes a while. Some people say, well, it's, it's more like a prophecy that that's going to happen. Okay, I could buy that. I don't, I'm not going to argue about that. But I don't think that's the reason it says that. I think that God goes, here's my stopwatch. 120 years from now, that's it. Everybody else is getting wiped out except Noah and his family. Because, because God was, was grieved here. Now, we're not, we're not going to get completely into that today, but this is a, a shadow here, a foreshadow of that. My spirit shall not abide in man forever. Who's the one who gives men life? It's God. He blew into Adam, and he became a living being. Otherwise, Adam is dust. Right? He's dirt. So there you go. That's the explanation for the 120. Praise God, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's not that easy. <laughs> All right. So let's look at the rest here of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. This is where it gets a little more tricky. Verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. All right. So we see here two different types of people. We see sons of God and we see daughters of men. Now if you... Go back down to verse 4. We're going to see this again. See again. Now it says here, it takes a little side, side trip here. It says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So now we have three peoples. We have sons of God, we have daughters of men, and we have Nephilim. So first question that has to be answered is, where does the Nephilim fit in with the sons of God and the daughters of men? Are the, are the Nephilim the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men? Or were they 
an independent group that is mentioned here. And why would you just mention an independent group here? Well, again, this is all setting us up for what is coming, right? Setting the reader up for what is coming. What is coming is God telling that he's going to destroy the earth through a flood. Okay? Now, I'm going to tell you where I land on this. This is not a salvation issue. <laughs> All right? If you look at our, our doctrinal statement, our statement of faith as a church, the word Nephilim does not appear in there. We don't even have a, a section on angelology or demonology in there. I don't think the Nephilim are the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. I don't believe that. I think they're mentioned here. And the reason why I don't believe that is it says they were before and after the flood. The other thing that's really difficult to do, it's really difficult to build a doctrine on one or two verses. Right? When we look at things like the substitutionary atonement, we can pull all kinds of different scriptures and say, look here, this is what God said he would do. This is what God said he would do. This is what God said he'd do. He, and then we look at the New Testament. He did it. 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 Right? We're not building a doctrine on one verse. Now, if God says it, he says it. So I'm not saying because he says it once, it doesn't matter. I'm not saying that either. I'm saying we just have to be careful, especially when it comes to things that are kind of strange. Let's, I'll show you the, the other place that the Nephilim here are mentioned. Okay, So Numbers, the book of Numbers, in chapter uh, 13, <clears throat> this is after Moses sends, sends in the spies to spy out uh, the, the land uh, to, to see where, you know, what they should do. And let's pick it up in verse 30. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against these people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land and that, this, that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we see, seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. All right, what does the word Nephilim mean? Let me back up, put a push pause just for a second. If you are somebody who reads your Bible, which I hope everybody in this room is, and you've read the book of Genesis on your own, and I hope you have, You've come across this word before. And you might have scratched your head and said, who is this? I don't remember exactly when it happened. I'm guessing I was a Christian about a year. And I looked at that and I said, what is this? So you know what I did? I did what, what any good young Christian does. I went to my pastor and I said, hey, pastor, what does this mean? He went, I don't know. <laughs> talk to somebody else so probably for I've been a Christian now almost 29 years next month will be 29 years for 29 years I've been trying to 28 years I've been trying to figure this out so uh, this is a tough one and I've heard different things from different people Nobody seems to be authoritative on it. But we know this. The word Nephilim means fallen. It means the fallen. And from the, the idea of the word, from the root of the word, it seems that that is a natural kind of fall. It's like the fallen condition of men. 
Now, the Greek translation, okay, from the Septuagint, translates this as the word giants. Okay? Now, so we get this idea out of this word that the people were extraordinarily huge people. Eight feet tall, ten feet tall, twelve feet tall. They, they would be uh, like uh, Goliath. Okay? A huge man. Um, now, what makes people tall or small? Generally, generally, what makes people tall or small? What? Genetics, right? Genetics, or if you pull them on a rack, maybe that helps a little bit too. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, but genetics, right? And genetics, uh, there's, there's things called genetic mutations, right, that happen. Well, genetic mutations happen because of the consequences of the, the fall, right? So today, you know, even in the wor world today, there are some freakishly large people. And we don't see them all the time, but there are people on the planet that are very big. You ever see the movie from the 80s, My Giant? Anybody, 80s kid, ever see that? Okay. Only my son has ever seen that movie. <laughs> uh, but in that movie, there's a dude that really lived that was abnormally huge. You remember back in the 70s and the 80s, the wrestler Andre the Giant? Yeah, big guy, right? I don't know if this was true or not, but they said that he couldn't ride in a regular car. So when they pick him up after one of his matches... They got a station wagon for him and put down all the seats and he had to lay down. That's how big the guy was. So, the Nephilim, they're fallen people. They are not, uh, I don't believe they are an alien race. Alright? There are, if you, if you search out the Nephilim and you look on the internet, please don't, but if you do... I know some of you have. I could see him shaking his head over there. Uh, uh, but if you do, you're going to find all kind of crazy things. People think aliens came down and created these people, or they are aliens, or uh, just all kinds of stuff. Let's stick with the flow of the text. Okay? So let's go back here to Genesis chapter 6. That's really all I want to say about the, the Nephilim. It, it is important from the perspective of understanding that people uh, have not changed. We're going to see here a little bit more as we dig in here. All right. So the big thing we've got to deal with now, the sons of God and the daughters of men. Okay, what does that mean? Sons of God, daughters of men. There are three prevailing theories on this with a couple side theories that can go along with it, other than the aliens. Okay, so we're not going to talk about the aliens. But there's three prevailing theories. One theory is that fallen angels, okay, come down and they have relations with uh, human women and they, they're married and they create people. That's one theory. There, there's good and godly men who subscribe to that theory. So in modern day, John MacArthur subscribes to that theory. Okay? Not that John MacArthur is the Pope, because he's not. Uh, but He's somebody well-known that most people would respect from a biblical point of view, and he holds to that. Another uh, long-standing biblical uh, thought on that is this. You have two lines. The line of Seth, and you have the line of Cain. Those two lines intermarry. Okay? And it dilutes the faithful. 
So that's number two. Number three, and I'm just giving you them now and we're going to walk through each one. Number three is that there's some kind of a royal line, noble type class, leader type class, people that are powerful, and that those people intermarry with human daughters. Okay? So we're going to talk through all three of these, and then I will tell you where I land on this. Uh, this is not a salvation issue. But there is an important issue within this that we're going to have to look at. Okay? All right. So, you all with me? All right. So, let's first look at the um, fallen angels theory. Now, this one wins the textual argument. I'm going to tell you that on its face, it makes the most sense in the textual argument. And I'm going to show you why. Okay? So, first of all, turn to Psalm chapter 29. Okay, Psalm 29, verse 1, it says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory, do His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Okay, so that's the translation from the ESV. But I'll tell you what it actually says. When it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. What it's saying is sons of God. And when, when it says that here, it could be translated angels or angelic beings. Okay? Turn to, me, to another spot here with me, to Job. Job is right before the Psalms. Job chapter 1. Now, Job is probably the oldest book that's written down in the entire Bible. Job lived around the time of Abraham, give or take. But he lived in that patriarchal period. And so the language used then would be very similar to the language used when uh, Moses put together the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, so Psalm, or Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So there you go. There's that sons of God showing up again. The angelic beings presented themselves before the Lord. Okay, so textually, we see that sons of God playing out here and again. And then there's one more spot. This one's a little more tricky. The book of Daniel, there's more than this, but I'm just showing you three instances. Daniel chapter 3. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men? Now this is when, when Daniel's in, in the furnace, okay? With his, his buddies are in the furnace, right? Um, and uh, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound. Walking in the midst of the fire... And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, that is not an angelic being. That is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Okay? But we see that term used of, for lack of better terms, heavenly bodies. Sons of God. 
Alright, so textually there. Now, the book of Enoch, can you turn there in your Bible? No, you can't, because it's not in your Bible. Some of you tried. The book of Enoch was a book called the book of Enoch, not written by Enoch, by the way. Okay, And there are several books of Enoch. The first book seems to be the most reliable of the three that are most popular. Uh, there's some crazy stuff in there, but there, the book of Enoch is also quoted in the New Testament, which gives it some legitimacy, okay? Because why would the New Testament writers mention it otherwise? I want to show you this. This is relevant to this passage. There's a reason why I'm showing you this. Okay, so turn with me to Jude. Jude is at the end, right before Revelation. By the way, as you're turning there, you're not going to find this in the Bible, but in the book of Enoch, the first book, Enoch identifies 200 fallen angels. Okay? As part of the group that supposedly came down in Genesis chapter 6. Okay? Now, Jude chapter, uh, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay, so there you go. You see sexual deviance, just like you see sexual deviance in Genesis chapter 6. You see these angelic beings. You see angelic beings in Genesis chapter 6. Now, um, let's look here at a couple more. Turn to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. I'm going to stop there. So we see that Jesus went and preached to these spirits who were in prison, Hades, right? And these spirits were somehow connected these spirits are not people, by the way. These are fallen angels. They were somehow connected to what happened here before the flood. All right, one more spot. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4. <clears throat> For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, if he rescued 
righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as the righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormented, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. You say, what, ha- what does that have to do with it? Well, here's some of what, what he's talking about at the end here. Angels are supposed to be under the authority of God, aren't they? So there was a rebellion. That's obvious. Uh, there was sexual deviance, Genesis chapter 6, that's what it talks about here, lust of defiling passion as well. So we can see a case, I can understand a case being made for this godly, or excuse me, for the fallen angels coming down and being with women, which is one of the prevailing theories, and it's one that's held by a number of current people, um, and uh, many of the church fathers held this as well as very plausible. Now, he, let me tell you why I have a problem with it. Okay? Two main reasons I have a problem with it. Let's, let's start with the heavy hitter. Jesus. <laughs> does he, does he, do his words mean something? I think so. Now, again, not a salvation issue. If you disagree with me on this, please feel the freedom to do that. Okay, Just have a reason why you believe what you believe. Um, This is not going to get anybody to heaven or keep anybody out of heaven. But at the end of it, what's going to be important is not who the sons of God and daughters of men are. We're going to see that here in just a few minutes. Luke 20, 34. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So let me just stop here and say this. Jesus essentially says this. The angels don't marry. They're not given in marriage. And so, because of that, I have a problem understanding this because it says they took them as their wives, any they chose. Well, how can you take somebody as your wife if you can't get married? Again, you can disagree, but that's hard to swallow. The second argument I have against this one is uh, has to do with types or kinds. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you can write this down, verse 38 through 41, there are different kinds of bodies. There are earthly bodies and there are heavenly bodies, it talks about. Just like in Genesis chapter 1, it talks about different kinds of uh, things producing after their own kinds different seeds producing after their kind, different animals producing after their kind. So angels and people are not the same kind. They're different. So I don't understand how a demon and an angel could reproduce an offspring any more than I can understand how a bear and a giraffe could produce an offspring. That would be a scary creature, wouldn't it? Can you imagine this tall bear with a big tongue? <laughs> and, it do- and it doesn't say anything, so it sneaks up on you. <laughs> it doesn't happen. They're different kinds. So that is the argument for and against the fallen angel theory. I'm going to get back to that in a second. Now we have the idea of Seth's godly line and Cain's line. All right, so 
Let me ask you this, based on your biblical knowledge, based on what you know from the Bible, on your own study, in the nation of Israel, has intermarriage ever been a problem? Absolutely. Absolutely. All the time, God's warning them, do not marry those that aren't you, right? Because they have different faith. And Jesus says in the New Testament, we looked at this in Bible study a couple weeks ago, he says, don't be unequally yoked. That passage isn't just about marriage, but it certainly applies to marriage, doesn't it? (coughs) We need to be with people like us, right? And I don't mean us as an economic class, us as a skin color, us as even a culture. It's us as in a faith. It's us as in people of God that trust God. Let's just look at one of these spots. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here we go. This will make a lot more sense. 7.3. All right. Where are... Okay, I'm going to actually... I'm going to pick it up in verse 2. And when the Lord God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy for them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. That's one of many examples of God telling his people not to intermarry with people that have faith in other things. Okay? So, the idea here of Seth's line and Cain's line can make some sense. However, it's not real clear in the text. But if you look at the context from chapter 4 through chapter 6, and you can see Cain's ungodly line and Seth's godly line. When I say Seth's godly line, that doesn't mean every person in there trusted God. Every person in there is in heaven. But the, the idea is these were people of not faith. These were people of faith. And when you see that it can make some sense. Let me now talk to you about the other theory. The royal line, the king and noble theory. So, going along with what I said about the intermarriage, let me just ask you culturally, even today, do people that have more prestige, more money, and more influence, tend to think they can do whatever they want? Yes. The answer is yes. Right? Some people think they're absolutely above the law. And they can get away with anything because they have the lawyers and the resources to get them out of whatever. And you just keep telling lies and don't ever retract. You just keep forward... uh, I'm not going to name names, but that happens with politicians all the time. Right? That happens with powerful people all the time. They lie, and they get what they want, and they think they're going to get away with it. That happens. Turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Okay. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So God identifies. This man's become like one of us. And isn't that what Eve wanted? Isn't that what tempted her? 
Now this says this in, 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 in number six, or Genesis six. It says right in the beginning here, verse two, the sons of God, they saw the daughters of men, right? And they took. That's very parallel to what happened with Eve. She saw that this was a delight to her eyes, right? That it would be good, and she took it. She wanted to be like God. Cain, when he killed his brother, even in the face of God having a conversation with him, and saying, hey, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. What does he do? He lies to God. He hides. He wanted to be like God. He made his own rules. Anytime we put ourselves on the throne and make our own rules, we're trying to be like God ourselves. Turn with me a couple more places. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 10. Verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. All right, so he's a mighty man. He was a warrior, a hunter. And then you'll see here, uh, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then it talks about all these other cities. So very similar to Cain, right? Cain was a builder of cities. Very similar to Cain. He was this guy that was trying to make a name for himself. Right? Now forward to chapter 11 when we see Babel. Verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be like God. Turn to chapter 12. We see the first encounter with a pharaoh here. Now, we think of of Genesis chapter 12 having to do with Abraham, and it, it does. But look at this section here in the middle. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 14, 12, 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Won't be the first time. Uh, Or last time, I should say. Won't be the last time. With great plagues. Because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? What did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh was a powerful dude, right? He was in charge of Egypt. He saw that she was beautiful. He took her because he wanted to. The powerful do that. The rich do that. Those that are in charge tend to do that. That's certainly not every man, but it sure is enough that it it, it makes sense. One more spot. Well, I'll just have you write this down. Check out 1 Samuel chapter 11. What happened with King David? He saw she was beautiful. And he said, go get her for me. But she's married. I don't care. I'll deal with that later. Right? Right? So we have this idea, this understanding that noble people, kings, rich people, they do what they want. 
They think they can buy anything they want. They think they can influence anybody they want. They think they have as much power as they want. In some countries today, over in Africa, and perhaps in other places of the world, but particularly in Africa, in some countries today, they still practice something called the right of the first night, which is where, essentially, a ruler, a king, will say to somebody else who's getting married that day, a man's marrying a woman, okay, I get the first honeymoon night with your wife. That happens. The rich, the powerful think they can do what they want. Now, go back to Genesis 6. Try to make this make some sense. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. These are men that thought they were above God, thought they were above the law, thought they could do what they wanted. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. Stop watch. That's it. 120 years from now, it's going to be over. Why? God can see the future. God knows the future. God plans the future. Guess what? He knew that's... Hey, no one needs this much time to build the ark. <laughs> the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children with, to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Boy, they thought they were something. Look at me. Look at the great city I built. Look at who I am. I am your everything. I am man's gift. God's gift to man. Right? Now, push pause for a second. What about these demons? <laughs> what about Jude? What about Peter? How does that fit in? Right? Here's the best I can come up with. I do think they played a part. I don't think they were the ones that actually had relations with the women. So we have two options here. Option number one would be these people became demon-possessed. Right? We could see that happening. We know that happened in the New Testament. Uh, we saw that Satan possessed a snake, right? A serpent. We see that happening. So it's actually men's bodies under demon possession. That's completely viable, I think. Option number two is that they were demon-influenced, which I think is perhaps even more likely, which means Satan was messing with people somehow in the background and maybe even appearing in the form of men. We see angels doing that, appearing in the form of men. But we don't ever see angels reproducing. God created angels once. He didn't create them to reproduce. He created men, just Adam and Eve, and said reproduce. And then he tells Noah, we'll see later, and his family to reproduce. He never says that against or about, about the angels or fallen angels. Uh, but it is very possible, highly likely, that these were demon-influenced people. So somehow, Satan worked in them just like he worked in Eve to commit evil, tempted them, hey, go do this. That he was tempting the sons of man and 
perhaps those were these noble people to go off and sin. Now why, what matters? What are we going to take away from this? You're like, okay, there's information. What about the glorification part? (laughs) What about, how 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 does that help our heart get closer to God? Well, I think it's a strong rebuke to us to remember where we came from. Genesis chapter 3 verse 13 says this. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, which we also know is the seed. Right? And then skipping down to God's words to Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of all the days of your life. Right? And at the end here, in verse 19, he says this, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We have no right. Nobody has a right to to step into the authority of God. What he says goes. This is his world. Everything in it is his, not ours. Can't take it with us when we go either. Right? Pharaoh's tried. It doesn't work. But this is, this is God's world, not ours. Also, along that line, we need to remember not only where we come from, but we need to remember where we're headed. <laughs> right? Our goal isn't here. Our goal isn't here. Uh, yeah, we have some short-term things here, but this isn't it. This is like total testing time here. That's it. Our lifespan is really short. The psalmist says 70, perhaps 80 years. I know it can be 90, it can be 100, but it's not 900 and it's certainly not 9 million. Our life is short. And so as we see men trying to take the place of God, trying to do their own thing, trying to become something and make a name for themselves, what we should say, instead of wow, we should say, you fool. It's the wrong way to go. Don't be like that. Don't be a Nimrod. You ever hear that growing up? Yeah. Don't be a Nimrod. It don't work. That's not what God intends for you. That's not God's best for you. So as we we take away this, I think the important thing to take away is we're understanding and now we're set up for the place that God is going to be grieved. God is going to exact his judgment Because of why? Because of disobedience. The same things that were going on then are going on now. Just like people needed to be ready for God then, they need to be ready for God now. Amen? Amen? If you have other thoughts about the Nephilim, the sons of God, the daughters of men, hey, let's talk. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us grace today. Thank you for your mercy in our life. And we pray that although there's all kinds of things that are drawing our attention or trying to draw our attention away from you, God, that 
you would not allow that, that we would say, no. There is one that I follow, and that is the God of heaven and his son, Jesus Christ. We pray, God, for our children and our grandchildren and their children until Jesus comes back, that you would have your way in us. In Christ's name, amen.